Good morning, everybody. It's really good to be with you today. Um, if you can, if you can turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus, the 16th chapter, and stand if you're able as we read God's Word. It's from Exodus, the 16th chapter. We're going to read most of the chapter. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they are to gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because God has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you the meat to eat in the evening and all the bread that you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses and Aaron, Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, in the morning you will be filled with bread, and you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Take, everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it till morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it till the morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. And then the Lord said to Moses, How long 
Will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. This is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave to you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron, so Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put on, put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is a very familiar story to some of us. Um, But as I was reading this out entirely, it's kind of ridiculous to see how explicit God is being and yet how, how sort of unaware the people of God seem to be. That God repeats over and over and over again what needs to happen. And yet still some people want to go out on the seventh day. Or still some people want to gather more than they need. Still some people don't trust that God will do what God has said. God calls us to be a remembering people by showing up and by showing the Israelites in very tangible, physical ways that God, he says, I am the Lord, your God. But we, just like the Israelites, are a very forgetful people. And much of following Jesus is remembering rightly and living our lives, are a response to a God who is doing what God said he would do. And so we participate in making right God's intended reality here on earth. And we rem- when we remember rightly, we create virtues and we create habits and we create narratives for our lives that propel us to live into this kingdom reality. Because we remember, we remember rightly that God is at work. That God is at work in a world where it's so easy to forget that God is here. Because it's so easy when we look around to say, what, where is God? There's no hope. But we become, as followers of God, a remembering people when we respond to God by showing up to participate in collectively making right our memories. When I was growing up, communion, communion, celebrating communion, the Lord's table, was meaningful because we remembered the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It was an opportunity to be reflective on how sinful and broken we were as people and how sinful and broken the world was, and to be grateful and to give thanks for the salvation that Christ made a way through for us through his life and death and resurrection. But I always remember as, I don't know when this started, as like a 10 or 11-year-old or as a teenager, that it was a very, very solemn and somber occasion. It was an occasion that we were supposed to see how bad we were and how like great God was, and that is true. It's so true. Because God is loving and God is gracious, and we are so not those things. 
But as I got older, I was exposed to more ways of what it meant to follow Jesus. And the practice of celebrating communion became so much more robust and meaningful. Because everything I remembered about how we celebrated communion in my childhood church was true. It was entirely true. And there was so much more to what God had done. I learned that celebrating the Lord's table was an opportunity to remember and to celebrate. Remember and celebrate that we're, we're part of a larger body of Christ that we share this table with across the world and everywhere with every kind of person. It was an opportunity to remember that Jesus gave his life so that we might be made right from our sins, but also that Jesus gave his life and rose again so that the world might be right and all of creation might be made right. It was an opportunity that when we say we break the bread and drink the cup, we're remembering and celebrate what Jesus has done for us on the cross, but also what Jesus is doing now and what Jesus will do, right? It was an opportunity to participate in God's table and literally anticipate the day when Christ comes and we can all eat together and we can all be in the place that God wants us to be. Celebrating communion is an act of remembrance, but how we remember it affects how we live. It's an act of creating celebrating and affirming this collective memory of what God has done. I couldn't get there on my own because I had one experience, but as I was exposed to more followers of Christ that saw it differently, my, my, my memory grew, my remembrance grew. In our passage today, in Exodus 16, we will explore three invitations that God gives us to be a people who remember rightly. First, God calls us to be a people who remembers rightly by inviting us to intentional reflection. Second, God calls us to be a people who remember rightly by inviting us to trust God for enough. And finally, God calls us to be a people who remember rightly by inviting us to participate in communal practices. The first invitation God gives us when he calls us to be a people who remember rightly is the invitation to intentionally reflect. God provides manna and quail for the Israelites after they had been making the journey out of Egypt. Just six weeks earlier, the whole Israelite community had been enslaved in Egypt. And now they were journeying through the desert. They were hungry. They were thirsty. You might even say they were hangry. (laughs) They'd been walking around the desert, and now they were feeling the physical effects of not having enough. And so they start complaining about how they should have just stayed in Egypt, because at least there... They sat around and had all the food they wanted, which probably wasn't true. (laughs) They grumbled, and they wished that God would have let them die in Egypt. In fact, they even go as far to accuse God of bringing them out to die, bringing them out of enslavement to die, of hunger in the desert. Underneath all of it, they fear dying. They're anxious because they don't think they have enough. They're they're adopting a mentality we might call scarcity. They they can't have enough. They fear their needs will not be provided for. And they think about the past. They think about Egypt in a rather faulty way. Egypt was not a land of plenty. They were enslaved. Their needs were not met. They likely did not have all the food that they wanted. But in this moment, in this moment of fear as they're in the desert, in this moment of anxiety, they exclaim that death in Egypt would be better than whatever God is bringing them into. According to Exodus 12, a few chapters prior, the Israelites had been in Egypt for 430 years. The Israelites were coming out of Egypt, the ones that were walking out in the desert. They were born there. They were born enslaved. Their children 
that they're with them, were born enslaved. Their grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents were born enslaved in Egypt. It's all they knew. Every reference point they had was one of being an enslaved people. But they weren't enslaved at the moment. And yet, they longed for what they knew. They wanted Egypt because even though it was oppressive, even though it was degrading, it was what they knew. It was familiar and it felt safe, even though in reality it wasn't. The Israelites longed for what they knew because it was, it was what they went to when they were afraid. For the Israelite community, the provision of manna and quail each day was God's literal and physical manifestation of provision, that God was their sustenance. God was tangibly and consistently showing up, allowing the Israelites the opportunity to write their collective memory and to daily practice remembering that it was Yahweh, that it was the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt. It was the Lord, God was the Lord not only who delivered them, but who would sustain them every day. God's provision of manna tangibly demonstrated the truth that God was their provider and allowed them the opportunity to remember rightly. So this first invitation God gives us when God calls us to be a people who remember rightly is an invitation to intentionally reflect. When the Israelites were responding, they were just responding out of where they were, out of what they felt, out of what they knew. And when we know what patterns and messages have formed us, we can name them. And then we're freed to respond differently and to center the truth of the gospel. So, for example, as a Chinese-American person, I was formed deeply by the Chinese culture that has some roots in Confucianism, has some roots in lots of things. And one of the values that was imprinted on me as a child, and as an adult, actually, was the value of saving face. Meaning I was taught to protect myself and everybody else from shame, from looking bad, from being publicly humiliated, Keeping it together, and not only for myself, but for other people, was a value. No one ever told me this. I was never, like, sat down and said, this is what was important. But I picked it up from my parents. I picked it up from my aunties and uncles at church. I picked it up because this was what was modeled around me as I grew up in in an immigrant community. I learned that the larger world, by watching, expects me to be quiet, to work hard, to keep my head down, and that the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. So now as an adult, I have to be intentional about learning to speak out against things or voicing an opinion that might have pushback or asserting myself too strongly because I know others will disagree or they could disagree, maybe they won't, because conflict means that things are not okay and could cause a loss of face. So my impulse to avoid sort of negative situations or emotions, both mine and other people's, is because I was taught from a very young age to sweep problems under the rug because then it seemed like everything was okay even though everyone knew it wasn't. Being formed by a culture that saves face makes it more counterintuitive for me to lament, to protest, to call out what's wrong, because that invites resistance. That invites uncertainty. That invites conflict and struggle, which leads to a loss of face. I don't give this example to demean the Chinese community or the Chinese culture. Every culture... Or, or even to uplift cultures that communicate more directly. Every culture has a shadow strength, shadow side. Every culture has strengths. There's some good things about saving face, like it allows minor inconveniences just to not be a problem for the sake of collective peace. But I share this example to say that if I don't intentionally reflect on how generations who came before me impact who I am, then I can't intentionally live differently. 
And so the less able I am to actually do the work that God calls me to, the less able I am to name injustice and therefore able to work against it and towards justice. So when I'm aware of how fully living into God's image in me means making space for my own opinions, my own difficult emotions, and that of others, then we can exist and I can work through those things, but because I've named it. We become a people that remembers rightly when we accept God's invitation to intentionally reflect on how we've been formed. Because when we intentionally reflect on how we've been formed, we can also become aware of how the good news of Christ can make us more fully alive and more healthy and more whole and more as God intended. In his book, The Deeply Formed Life, Pastor Rich Velotis provides some helpful insights for intentionally reflecting on how we've been formed. He says, and I quote, The work of examining my family of origin scripts has given me a window into my soul and an opportunity to believe and orient my life around the good news of the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. Whenever the scripts of my family of origin surface, my soul needs to return to this truth. But unless I'm doing the work of examination, I will not locate the source of the wounded ways I've been formed. So if you have some time later this week, take some time to yourself, maybe 30 or 45 minutes, maybe with your journal, and ponder these questions. And Amy, you can put up the slide at this point. Um, feel free to refer back to this. So you don't have to like write everything down. But here's some questions that you can think through slowly. How have your family of origin or the culture of your communities of belonging formed you? What patterns of behavior or thinking have extended from generation to generation to generation? What traumatic or emotionally distressing events or occurrences have shaped your formative years? And what responses do you have as a result? What of these norms, um, what messages have you received or roles have you been given to play? What of these norms of your family of origin or cultures that have formed you as counter to how God has called us to live? What of your family of origin or culture of community of belonging do you need to embrace? And what do you let go of? And how do you do that? Where are you longing for the comfort of Egypt when God is calling you forward into a new reality that requires trusting God for your provision rather than relying on an old but comfortable narrative? So I'd encourage you to take some time this week and think about those questions. If you want to unpack these questions with a good friend, or explore seeing a therapist or a spiritual director if some of these things sort of stir up a point of pain. Um, on July 28th, we'll having our next book discussion on the deeply formed life, and we'll go into this, in, this practice of intentional reflection, or what Pastor Rich Velotis calls internal examination more deeply. So I'd encourage you to join that um, if something sparked, something spoken to you. Now, the discussion will be on, on Zoom. So first, God calls us to be a people who remember rightly by inviting us to intentional reflection. When we look back on how our communities of belonging and the identities that we embody have formed us and how they impact how we believe and how we follow God, we're able to see what God's truth is and try to remember rightly and re-imprint our memories. Our reflection helps us become aware of how we've been unconsciously formed, and it gives us an opportunity to remember rightly who God is, who we are, and how God is calling us forward to live. Remembering rightly who God is and who we are leads us to the second invitation. 
So the second invitation is that God calls us to be a people who remember rightly by inviting us to trust God to be enough. One of the themes of this passage is the people's grumbling and God's provision. In verse 2, we learn that the whole community is in the desert, grumbling to Moses and Aaron about the lack of food. Verse 3 tells us the Israelites are grumbling that they would rather have died in Egypt rather than having with seemingly plenty of food, rather coming into the wilderness with nothing to eat and be starved by God in the desert. The people are accusing God of bringing them into the desert to die. And yet God responds almost immediately, if you look at the text, in saying that, I hear you, I hear your grumbling. And he tells Moses and Aaron that God will rain down heavenly bread, and each day the people are to gather enough for that day. And then on the Sabbath, they're together, or on the sixth day, they're to gather twice for the seventh day. We see in verse 6 that God shows up. He tells the Israelites through Moses and Aaron, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of God, because he has heard your grumbling against him. From verse 6 through 12, God tells Moses or Aaron to tell the Israelites some iteration of this, that God has heard them and that he will provide for them four times. Four times in six verses, God says this. And yet, as Aaron is in the process of telling the Israelites a third time in these six verses to come to God because God has heard them, God actually shows up. God shows up. The glory of the Lord, it says, appears in a cloud. The very presence of God shows up. Even after he has told them multiple times that he's going to provide, God, the presence of God shows up in a cloud. And God does this because God knows where the Israelites are at. He knows that God himself showing up in a cloud would remind them that only weeks earlier, God showed up in a pillar of cloud and led them out of Egypt in the same way. And that same God that delivered them is here with them now in the desert. God knows and loves and sees that the Israelites will know that this is a comforting thing to them as they sit hungry and expectant in the desert. God is compassionate and caring and literally physically comes to be with the Israelites it's a pretty crazy thing for us to think about as 21st century Christians that God would literally come and sit with them. But it's a reminder that God has provided in the past and that God will provide now. God does not dismiss their grumbling. God hears their grumbling. God hears their fear. God hears their anxiety. God hears the false narratives running through their heads that they had tons of food to eat in Egypt. He hears the narratives in their heads that they haven't spoken about oppression and scarcity. He hears them, and God provides tangible presence. In verse 11, Moses relays God's message to the people again, telling them, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know I am the Lord your God. God tells them that in the evening they will get meat, but God shows up in a cloud in the afternoon. Like God comes even before. So in the evening, just as God promises, we see in verse 8, the quail comes, and the following morning the manna comes, and they'd never seen it before, and then they learn what it is. And so the second invitation that God gives us when God calls us to be a people who remember rightly is the invitation to trust God for enough. 
we remember that God is God, that God is the Lord our God when we trust God for our provision each day. Just as the Israelites trusted that the manna that God provided would be enough, we are called to remember that our daily provision for our lives, for our families, for our community, for our world, that God will also provide. God is like a loving parent who kind of hears their children's whining for a snack. And instead of trying to redirect them or say, wait, or say, you know, later, or defer them because you want to teach them some delayed gratification. And these are just hypotheticals, right? God is like the parent who says, here's a snack and here's some juice. And I'm going to make sure that you have as much as you want every day at this time so that you know that I'm never going to let you starve. God calls the Israelites to do the things that will cause them to trust in God's provision for each day. He doesn't just say, hey, I'll provide. God gives them things to do so he will, they will know that he will provide. And he wants them to go out of this scarcity mentality, out of this anxiety about not having enough. But yet God listens to the grumbling they have. And instead of defending himself or saying, hey, I, I did this for you already, or that, no, I, why would I bring you out to starve? God shows them that God will provide enough by providing what they need when they need it. And so the second invitation God gives us, when God calls us to be a people who remember rightly, is invitation to trust God for enough. God's gift to the Israelites here is that God gives them enough, but not more than enough. If the people had more than enough, they would have the temptation to say, hey, that was me. I saved enough. I portioned it out to make sure we have enough for every day or the next two days it could have become normal for them to say, hey, I can provide for myself. But by God giving them only enough for that day, God was giving them the opportunity to build the muscle, to build the memory that trusting God's provision means that they themselves are not sufficient. God told them to gather double on the sixth day, to have enough for the seventh. We learn in verse 29 that the Sabbath is a gift of God. It's not a legalistic requirement to say you have to follow it in order for, me, for, for us to be good with God. The Sabbath is a gift. It's a gift of rest that invites us to trust in the Lord's provision. God had taken the Israelites' grumbling and used them as an opportunity to have them daily practice their trust in God and give them the daily bread they needed and a weekly Sabbath rest. One of the ways we can tangibly trust God to provide for us is to accept that gift of Sabbath rest. I know our church has a very high value on Sabbath already, but even so, it can be very hard, practically, to actually rest from our labor. But when we have rest, we have the space to be refreshed. But resting is also an act of trust. It's a tangible demonstration to say that God will provide, that I don't have to work today. It's an act of faith and an acceptance of God's gift, saying that for 24 hours I'm going to slow down and not be dominated by work or think about work, and I have an opportunity to trust that God will provide. My sustenance will provide what I need rather than me striving like I do every other day. It's an acknowledgement that we cannot do on our own anything to provide our own sufficiency. And so Sabbath is an opportunity to practice trusting God for enough. And while I think we would all like to be able to take a Sabbath, the reality is for a variety of reasons, whether they be economic or 
um, work schedule or family needs, it may be difficult to actually set aside a whole day to do that and decenter our work and our labor. And maybe for some of us, and I put myself in that category, it may be too drastic a shift to actually take 24 hours off right away at this current time and not think about anything. So if this describes your situation, I'd like to encourage you to take like many Sabbaths every day. Set aside five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes every day at a specific time and dedicate that time to taking a break from work, from your labors. You know, if you're home with kids, to do something for yourself. Take a walk or to read a book. But not filling it with something productive. Don't take that 15 minutes to check your email or do something that you need to take care of for your personal life. Take that time to decenter your work, to decenter striving, and to do something that allows you to breathe and to rest and to be reminded that God is enough. For some of us, that might be a spiritual practice like reading a psalm or doing the daily office um, or the examine. If you need some examples of those practices, feel free to go back to the videos that we made during Lent for some examples. Um, if you don't know how to access those, you can email admin at newcommunitycovenant.com. For others of us, it might just be taking a walk or having time of solitude or just letting our brains sit there or eating our lunch, actually eating our lunch without doing anything else in silence. Intentionally stopping our work, whether it's one day a week, whether it's five or ten minutes a day, is a tangible and practical way for us to be reminded that God provides enough. It imprints on our bodies and in our minds and in our hands that whether we work the extra 15 minutes or the extra two hours or busy ourselves with more, that God gives us enough for each day. So the second invitation that God gives us when God calls us to be a people that remember rightly is the invitation to trust God for enough. When the Israelites are grumbling about their hunger, God invites them into a practice of gathering enough manna for the day and trusting God to provide for the next day. We learn that in Exodus 16.35, this practice of gathering manna lasted 40 years. It was a 40-year journey from Egypt to the edge of the Promised Land. And the people gathered manna 40 days, 40 years, every single day. They, they, they imprinted it on their bodies that God was their provider. So the third and final invitation that God gives us when God calls us to be a people who remember rightly is the invitation to communal practices. God makes the Israelites into a people of God in and through community. In this passage, like most of the Bible, God is talking to a people, to a community. God is not talking to a person or to an individual. And so in this passage, we see that the words whole Israelite community is mentioned six times in the chapter. The exodus from Egypt is a journey on which God is forming a people, a community. God is forming the Israelites to be the chosen people of God and to forming them to realize that God is the Lord their God. God is calling and forming a people. The entirety of the exodus story is God forming a people. Really, the entirety of scripture is God forming a people. Um, and forming a people with a collective identity, one that is grounded in God as the source of our provision, God as the source of bringing forth what God wants to do. The people are coming, the Israelites are coming from a reality where they're enslaved, um, where work did defined everything they did. 
And they're moving from that existence to an existence, from an existence where they did nothing but labor to one that is built around a rhythm of rest and of remembrance that God is God. Building themselves, their lives around a rhythm that they need to trust God. In Exodus 16, we see God forming the Israelites to be a people that know and trust him for their deliverance from Egypt, but also for their daily sustenance. They go out and they gather enough for today. They eat one meal and then they wait for the next day. And they repeat that five times. And on the sixth day, they go and they gather enough for two days and they eat and they wait and they wait and they eat. And they keep doing this for 40 years. In verses 17 to 30, we see that God, or we see how the Israelites go about their daily gathering of manna and how God gives them the gift of Sabbath. They gather enough for that day and whatever was left, Moses says, get rid of it. But some people didn't want to listen, and so they, they, had, they kept too much. And then when, when the sun went down, that manna was full of maggots. And so I don't know if you have an idea of what maggots are, but they're like little bugs, worms. They're really nasty. And so what was good, because God told them to gather enough, at the end of the day becomes spoiled and rotten in the wrong time because God told them to, to throw it out. So... On the sixth day, they gathered enough to, for two days, but that didn't go bad because God had ordained that, because God had told them, gather enough for the seventh day, too. But some people still went out on the seventh day, still. After the maggots, they still went out <laughs> looking for manna. The scarcity thing is still in their heads, right? But verse 30 tells us that eventually, somehow, people rested on the seventh day. Who knows what happened between verse 29 and verse 30? But eventually, they successfully listened to God day after day after day or year after year after year. Who knows? They eventually listened and they rested. God's instructions to the Israelites are to gather enough for that day, that God would provide enough for one day because God is giving them the opportunity to trust that God will provide for the next day. God giving us enough for today is an opportunity for us to trust that God will provide enough for the next day. The manna went bad <clears throat> on days one to five overnight because when, if people kept it, it was a sign they didn't trust God. And God wanted them to trust him every day. God wanted them to know in the very core of their beings that God would provide for each and every day, that they didn't have to worry, that they didn't have to have fear or anxiety, that there wouldn't be enough because God would provide enough. So God again, is forming the Israelites in a very physical, embodied way. God is building their very bones, their very sinews, their very muscles, the motions that allow them to remember rightly that God is their provider and sustainer. It's like this thing called muscle memory, that if you see a pianist, a professional pianist who's trained his whole life, and he sits down at the piano for a performance, and his hands just go. They just go. And they find the notes without even thinking. Like, they're not thinking about the notes. They're just going. And so when their hands come to hit, their hands just go because they've done it time and time and time again before. Or uh, Elena Del Don, who's a WNBA basketball player who has practiced thousands and thousands of free throws, coming to the line, bouncing the ball a few times, and shooting it. She, at that moment, she's able to block everything out because she's done it so many times, and the ball goes in 93% of the time. It's crazy because she's done it so many times. That's better than Steph Curry, for those of you who are there. 
but that's another issue. By instructing the whole Israelite community to participate in the gathering of manna, God imprints both on their minds and their hearts and their muscles that God is their provider. And God takes a grumbling people, an anxious people, a fearful people, and successfully makes them into a community that follows the rhythm of gathering and waiting and seeing that God delivers them from enslavement, not only from Egypt, but that he will deliver them that day too. So the third invitation God gives us when God calls us to be a people who remember rightly is the invitation to communal practices. Being a follower of God requires that we are called into a community of God's people, both to a local church here and to the church, the whole church, universal. As such, just as the Israelites participated in the ritual of gathering manna for those 40 years, we too participate in a community of faith that practices, that remembers that God is our source of sustenance, that we together remember rightly who God is, that we belong to God, and that we belong to each other. We remember together that God is faithful and worthy of our trust. God calls us to be a people who remember rightly by inviting us to participate in communal practices because following God is not meant to be done alone. Being a people that remembers rightly through intentional reflection of how God's truth does and does not permeate our lives becomes real in community because we can share that with each other. We can't do it on our own because all we have is our own perspective. We can only see as much as we can see. But if we engage with other people who are different than us, who have come from different places, we can see beyond ourselves. We can see more of God. We can see more of where we need to go individually, where we as a community need to go with God. And so these communal practices and rituals and rhythms that the church has, our particular church at New Community Covenant and other local churches, we have those too. We come together every Sunday to remember. We come together on a regular basis with the purpose of remembering that Jesus is our Lord and Savior and has come and will come again to make all things new, to bring shalom and to make things as they should be. Because on our own, we forget that because the world is so much sometimes. Even our lives Forget the world. Our own lives sometimes are so much. Unfortunately, that doesn't allow for today. Today we cannot be together, actually, but we can be together across the screens. We can be together in spirit. I encourage you to be together, to reach out to people. And if you are able on Sundays to join us in the parking lot for this summer, because there's a power in being formed together as God's people that doesn't come when we're all in different places. COVID has, allowed, had, has forced us in some ways to do that, but now we have the opportunity, as you are able, to come and to be formed together as the people of God. So I invite you to come and to be present. The act of showing up is an act of trust, that God is present with us. So just as God formed the Israelites into the people of God, into the desert, after the exodus, after all they've gone through, God is forming us into a people. God is forming us into a people who can follow God successfully. Doing the work of the kingdom is holistic. It involves our whole selves, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our souls, our relationships, our communities, the systems of this world. It involves all of that being formed by God 
with and in and for the people of God so that we can work together to make God's world a better place. When we gather together, we are making communal memories. We are remembering rightly together who God is, who God has been, and who God always will be. We are remembering the truth of God rather than the distortions and the lies that the world can give us. We are choosing to remember who God is. In Exodus 16, the people were creating a communal memory that Yahweh, the Lord their God, delivered them from Egypt, delivered them from 400 years of slavery. And that same God was their provider each and every day, the 40 years they were in the wilderness and beyond. That same God provides for what we need today in the moment and in the time that we need. And so when we accept God's invitation to communal practices, to be a part of the people of God, we're not only remembering rightly what has been, but we gather to remember what's to come. We remember that God has and is making all things new. We gather to be reminded in the words that we sing, in the words that we hear, in the, how we lift our hands and how we greet each other, that God is bringing something new. And we can't do that by ourselves. We can't do that by ourselves. It's like, uh, sorry for all the music analogies, like I can play all I want by myself, but if I put myself together with a bunch of other instruments that sound different and play different and are played different ways, you have a symphony. You have something so much better and beyond what I could do by myself. So God is creating a community that can, can do the work and can create and bring forth the kingdom that can reflect that. Our communal practices of worship and word and the Lord's Supper and our service together sustain us as we gather to, to, to work on succeeding and failing at remembering rightly, but we're doing it together. And when we do it together, we can draw from the faith of others when ours is lacking, and we can be a source of faith for others when theirs is lacking. So the act of showing up for communal practice is in itself an act of trusting that God is enough. And so in this way, much of following God is just showing up and remembering and trusting that God will do what God will do, and the Holy Spirit will work in the ways that the Holy Spirit will work, because God is faithful, because God provides for the people of God. So God calls us to be a people who remember rightly by inviting us to intentional reflection, by inviting us to trust God for enough, and inviting us to be a community that practices together. The first invitation God gives us when God calls us to be a people who remember rightly is the invitation to intentionally reflect. When we intentionally reflect on how we've been formed, we're able to identify more readily how unconsciously we have been formed, and we can choose more consciously to either live into how we've been formed or to integrate how we've been formed into how God has called us to be. We can live centered around the good news of Christ, that God is making all things new. And we can go on this journey of replacing the ways that are not of that with a gospel that is so much good news. The second invitation gives us that God gives us when God calls us to be a people who remember rightly is the invitation to trust God for enough. In the desert between Egypt and the Promised Land, God had the Israelites practice putting their trust in God by having them engage daily and consistently in the practice of gathering manna for that day and trusting that God would bring enough for each day on its own. When we practice Sabbath, whether it be once a week or a little bit every day, we're imprinting on our bodies, in our bodies, a trust for God for our own sufficiency. 
The act of Sabbath is a countercultural act, not only of rest, but of trust. That our, our productivity and our sufficiency is not the source of our strength or our salvation, but rather we put ourselves and put our faith in God, who is our Lord and our provider. The third and final invitation God gives us when God calls us to be a people who remember rightly is the invitation to communal practices. God made the Israelites a people, a people that follow God together. We lean, as we lean into our collective identity as the people of God by showing up with and for the people of God, by worshiping together, by learning, by growing together, when we show up for each other, we remember rightly that our faith is not meant to be on our own, but rather we are, God is making us together. When we engage in these communal practices of faith, we trust that God is the one who brings forth growth, that God is the one who brings forth the kingdom through us, and with us. God is with us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the way that you work in your time. Lord, we thank you that you are worthy of our trust, that before anything we ever did, before anything we ever said, you were there, and you were calling us to be your people. Lord, I pray that you would show us in our lives, in the everyday, how we can trust you, day to day, moment to moment. Lord, give us the courage to reach out to others when we can't go alone. Lord, give us the courage to, to examine our pasts. Give us the courage to lean into community together and trust that you will bring something new out of it. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.